The ancient world interpreted time in terms of cycles. As they reflected on the history of their republic, later Romans noticed a rhythm of crises and renewals occurring on a regular basis. They called this pulse of history the saculum, a period of time lasting 80 to 110 years or the length of a long-lived human life. Legend has it, Romulus, one of the founders of Rome, had a vision of 12 vultures, leading him to predict the city would endure for 12 saculum. The Gothelaric sacked Rome in 410, signaling a beginning of the end for that city's greatness. 38 years later, Rome would celebrate her 1200th anniversary. 12 vultures, 12 saculum, 1200 years. Probably coincidence. But the Latin people viewed time in terms of cycles. Others have observed human history falls into cyclical patterns. Writing in the 13th century, the French author Jean de Mune observed, Peace makes plenty, plenty makes pride, pride breeds quarrel, and quarrel brings war. War brings spoil and spoil poverty, poverty patience and patience peace. So peace brings war, and war brings peace. Ibn Khaldun, a well-traveled Islamic polymath living at the turn of the 15th century, noted in his introduction to history how kingdoms are subject to a 100 to 120 year cycle that occurs in five stages. Crisis, growing strength, the zenith of power and generosity, a period of weakening, and finally death, repeat. British historian Arnold J. Toynbee observed an 80 to 100 year cycle of war and peace that had shaped European history, beginning with the Italian Wars in 1494 and concluding with the World Wars in the first half of the 20th century. And he argued that this pattern was by no means unique to Europe. Both Chinese and Greek history were shaped by similar patterns. In our own history, America has reached a crisis stage on a remarkably regular basis. The American Revolution, the Civil War, the Great Depression, and our current moment of cultural and political crisis have happened at 80 to 90 year intervals. Scripture itself alludes to cycles of time. Scripture depicts the era of the judges as successive cycles of obedience, disobedience, crisis, deliverance, and revival. In the opening verses of Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes everything under the sun as captive, two cycles concluding, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. In the book of Revelation, the first four bowls of wrath in chapter 16 echo the judgment of the first four trumpets in chapter 8. Both of these impact the earth, the sea, the rivers and springs and the heavenly bodies in that order. Even though their historical fulfillments are separated by centuries, the bowls echo the trumpet showing us a cyclical pattern. God punctuates his scheme of redemption with major milestones on a regular basis. 430 years transpired from Abraham to the law. 480 years elapsed from the exodus to the building of the temple. 430 years passed between the beginning of the building of the first temple and the order to rebuild the second. 
And between the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall and the crucifixion of Jesus, there were 490 years. Every five to six lifetimes, God accomplished a major milestone in his scheme of redemption. Human history is not a new series or a series of new compositions characterized by novel developments and new themes. On the contrary, human history is a symphony with themes stated and recapitulated and inverted. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And this is true down to the level of the individual. Sociologists and psychologists have observed poverty and trauma can dominate families for generations. In my children, I see traces of people they barely knew or never knew at all. As I examine my own life, patterns of thought and behavior emerge that echo what I saw and heard from a very young age. We are all subject to the tides of inherited genetics, attitudes, and behaviors. We are all variations on themes composed over generations. But not all of these cycles are either healthy or righteous. In fact, some cycles are meant to be broken. God reveals an important insight into how the world works in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Rick talked about verse 6. I'd like to focus my attention on verse 5. God says to the children of Israel, You shall not bow down to the images of false gods to serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's tempting to interpret this passage as either a promise of a generational curse or a generational blessing. Some people believe that God punishes us for the sins of our fathers based on this passage. And if we were born into a family with a heritage of righteousness, we must have won some sort of genetic lottery. But considering the way God operates in Scripture, I think he intends a different message. Here is what I think God is teaching us. Family dysfunction and their consequences are passed down from parents to children and from generation to generation. Each human family has its own culture, including unique strengths and weaknesses. Some of these may be the result of genetic inheritance, like musical or athletic accomplishments. Other strengths and weaknesses within an individual family culture are the results of environments or choices. These include values, priorities, decision-making skills, etc., When negative choices and a bad home environment become deeply entrenched within a family culture, individual members can become self-destructive and in successive generations unknowingly pass on those traits. How powerful are these generational influences? Well, in 1874, a member of the New York State Prison Board noticed that six members of the same family were incarcerated at the same time. 
the board decided to do some research, looking back a few generations to try to find the original couple who initiated this tragic family legacy. They traced the family line back to an ancestor born in 1720, a man who was considered lazy and godless with a reputation as the town troublemaker. He was also an alcoholic and viewed as having a low moral character. And to make matters worse, he married a woman who was much like himself. And together they had six daughters and two sons. Here is what their report revealed about the approximately 1,200 descendants of this couple who were alive in 1874. 310 were homeless, 160 were prostitutes, 180 suffered from drug or alcohol abuse, 150 were criminals who spent time in prison, including seven for murder. The report also found that the state of New York had spent $1.5 million. Think about that. That's 1874. That's a shockingly large amount of money. In our time, back then, it's just almost unfathomable. They had spent this much money to take care of this line of descendants. And it seemed, based on their findings, that not one had made a significant contribution to society. This is what I think God means when he talks about the iniquity of the fathers being handed down from generation to generation. That's an example out in the world. Now let's look at an example from Scripture. In Genesis chapters 4 and 5, Scripture contrasts two families. One descended from Cain and the other descended from Seth. Cain was a violent man. Five generations later, Lamech, the first recorded polygamist, boasted to his wives about killing a man. He dared anyone to test his desire for violence and vengeance. But in the same generation, was Seth's descendant Enoch. Unlike Lamech, Enoch was a righteous man. He walked with God. Jude tells us Enoch prophesied about the return of the Lord. Scripture juxtaposes these two families to communicate an important message. Tendencies formed in one generation recapitulate in future generations. From Seth's line emerged a heritage of righteousness. Adam had other sons and daughters, but Seth is singled out, presumably because of his faithfulness. God held Seth's descendant Enoch in such high esteem, Scripture says God took him. A few generations after Enoch came a man without peer in his time. The man Noah. Seth represents a heritage of righteousness. But Cain's line did not learn from their exile. Lamech's anger, his propensity for violence, and his thirst for vengeance echo the tendencies of his forefather Cain. And those tendencies spread like cancer as the daughters of men, the line of Cain, intermarried with the sons of God, the line of Seth, filling the earth with violence. So potent was this heritage that every intention of the thoughts of mankind's hearts were only evil continually. What began in a moment of jealousy and resentment and rage in one generation reset the human race and reshaped our world just a few generations hence. So visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children has to do with the consequences 
from patterns of sin and dysfunction that persist from one generation to the next. As a parent, it's a sobering, humbling question to ask, what baggage am I passing on to my children? One's dysfunctional personal behavior becomes a model or an example to the next generation, and the cycle can be repeated over and over again. Some of us come from family backgrounds of defeatism, divorce, pessimism, selfishness, greed, anger, addictions, and laziness. Unless we break this curse, these traits may very well be passed on to our children. Thus, godly parenting demands that I look in the mirror, the mirror of the Word of God, and see myself for who I truly am. How can I expect my children to win battles that I refuse to fight myself? Am I allowing destructive patterns to continue for selfish reasons? Do I secretly hope that my children will be as miserable as me? Am I making my child a victim to score sympathy points for myself? Am I doing what's best for my child? Or have I made my child my avatar by carelessly living through their experiences to make up for some deficiency in myself? Am I really interested in what is best for them? But my kids don't have to carry my baggage. Generational cycles do not have to last to the third or fourth generation. They can stop and they can stop right now. Ezekiel and Jeremiah's generation claimed they were victims of their parents' sins. Fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge was the proverb they repeated to one another. But the proverb ignored that generation's complicity in their father's sins. God talks about this with Ezekiel in chapter 18, but ten chapters earlier in chapter 8, he takes Ezekiel by vision back to Jerusalem. Ezekiel's in Babylon. He transports him by vision back to Jerusalem, where Ezekiel witnesses the various ways his generation defiled the temple with idolatry. These were by no means innocent victims exiled to Babylon. They were just the latest in a line of hard-hearted rebels that stretched clear back to the foot of Mount Sinai. Generational idolatry, if you will. As God says to Jeremiah, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Every person in every generation is responsible for their own decisions. To illustrate his point, God walks Ezekiel through a hypothetical succession of three generations in chapter 18. It begins with a righteous man who upholds the way of the Lord, but that righteous man fathers a son who forsakes the way of righteousness and walks in the paths of sinners. But this wicked man fathers a son who sees the sins of his father and does not do likewise. Righteous generation followed by a wicked generation followed by a righteous generation. 
And God's example is more than just hypothetical. Consider the example of three kings we find recorded in 2 Kings chapter 15 through 20. Jotham was a good king, a good king of Judah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all his father Uzziah had done, 2 Kings 15:34. But Jotham gave birth to Ahaz. Doug talked with us about Ahaz yesterday at length. And as Doug reminded us, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. But a wicked king gave us a good king. Ahaz's son Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So here we have a righteous king succeeded by a wicked king who was in turn succeeded by a righteous king. It doesn't matter who your parents are. You can change the trajectory of your family because God considers each individual either righteous or unrighteous based upon his own merits, regardless of the conduct of his parents. As God says in Ezekiel 18:20, son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. How our parents conducted themselves has no bearing on our standing before God. Now, their influence can't be denied, and it is to some extent inescapable. However, I can with a clear eye and mind discern my parents' failings and course correct, lest I fall into the same patterns. And if I'm fortunate enough to come from family that believes in God and goes to church and strives to be all that the Lord calls us to be, I should not trust in my family's righteousness. Just because I descend from a righteous family does not mean I will be considered righteous in the eyes of God. Because God judges me based on the merits of my own conduct, independent from whatever heritage I have received. And if that heritage includes cycles of sin and dysfunction, I can end them today. I can end them right now in my generation so that my children can know a better life than what I have known. Sociologists and psychologists talk of concepts like generational poverty or generational trauma. These refer to attitudes that perpetuate these maladies from one generation to the next. And in the nation of Israel and Judah, those two nations, we can see them suffering from something I'm going to call generational idolatry. From the foot of Mount Sinai to the day Nebuchadnezzar raised the city of Jerusalem, Israel suffered from this malady. But it was cured. It was cured because when Jesus shows up on the scene, Israel had solved its problem of generational idolatry. So much so that Jesus never once directly addressed the subject of idolatry in his ministry. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus never once talks about idolatry. 
Paul talks about it at length because Paul's working among the Gentiles where idolatry was rampant. Jesus just barely even mentions it indirectly in a couple of passages. Never once does he directly address that. Why? Because Israel broke its cycle. How did they do it? Well, God helped them. He sent them into captivity. First to Assyria for the northern kingdom and later to Babylon for the, sun, from the, for the southern kingdom. But there was more to their healing than that. If we want to heal these wounds that in some cases have plagued our families for generations, we must first realize that healing and restoration are accomplished by the power of God. The book of Nehemiah begins with the cupbearer receiving reports of Jerusalem's desolation. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's over in Persia at this time. He hears these reports about Jerusalem's condition, and these reports stir in him a desire to see the wall rebuilt. Moved by these stories, Nehemiah fasts and prays for God to use him as a tool to accomplish this good purpose. And he especially wants God's help with the Persian king. Because he wants to ask the Persian king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. He needs the Persian king to look favorably upon this request. So when the king asks Nehemiah one day why he is troubled, Nehemiah says a brief prayer to God, and he makes his request. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah said a brief prayer, and he trusted in that moment when he made this request of King Artaxerxes, that God would honor his desire to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. And God answered Nehemiah's prayer. He sent him back to Jerusalem. And in 52 days, Nehemiah and those Jews who worked alongside him rebuilt the wall. And when they finish up at the end of those 52 days, this is what Nehemiah says in chapter 6, verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Families harmed by generational sin and dysfunction are like a city lying in ruins. Reversing these trends begins with a desire to see our families become what God wants us to be. And if we fix our desire upon breaking free from the traps of previous generations, God will work with us to accomplish our desires. Now, he won't do it for us because Nehemiah and his fellow Jews had to build the wall. But it was by his power, through his providential working, through arranging all of these things, working in ways that man could not, that God made all of this possible. But still, Nehemiah and the Jews had to build the wall. Healing comes by the power of God, but we have to do something. We must set about the tasks our desire for restoration demands. So here are a few things to think about. 
If you find yourself a victim of generational whatever, here are a few things you can do. Number one, honor your parents in spite of what they have done to you or allowed to be done to you. To be frank, the wickedness and cruelty and foolishness of some parents makes this a difficult command for too many children to keep. Scripture is not naive about the harms and hurts done to children by negligent parents or abusive parents. I'm reminded of the warnings of Jesus about causing little ones who believe in him to stumble. It would be better for the offenders to drown themselves in the sea. God is well aware of this world's cruelty, and he vows to avenge the victims of abuse. Regardless, God commands everyone to honor their parents. The Jews never ran from their history of generational idolatry. Paul reminded the Corinthians of these lessons in his first letter, chapter 10. But there's no denying that even though the Jews were aware of their history, they also highly esteemed their ancestors. There's a lesson to be learned in that. It is possible to both see the flaws of our predecessors and honor the heritage, the good heritage, whatever that might be, we have received. It is possible to see their flaws and to honor them at the same time. And I can't stress how important it is to honor our parents. Proverbs chapter 30, verse number 11, Agur, the son of Jacob, states, Those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers are no better than the proud and the oppressors. No matter how old we are or what we have been through, God commands us to honor our parents. And he will bless those who honor their parents as they break away from the cycles of sin and dysfunction that their parents have passed on. Here's another thing we can do to help ourselves. When we rejoice in God, even when we're sorrowful, we can find healing. There's an interesting moment in the 137th Psalm. Psalm 137 was written after the Babylonian captivity. It's a reflection on what was happening as the captives were exiled in Babylon. And it begins with a bitter lamentation. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. The psalm expresses the deep wounds these captives felt while exiled in a foreign land. They were victims of generational idolatry. They were responsible too. There was a reason why they were being punished. Here they are suffering immensely this terribly traumatic experience they've gone through. And all their reason for singing and rejoicing had been taken from them. So what did they do with their harps? They hung them on the willows and sat down by the river to weep. As they ask a couple of verses later, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, the captives asked. Singing at this moment seemed to them completely inappropriate. But to add further insult to injury, The Babylonians demanded Israel sing. 
Those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. It might seem like a cruel request. And I'm sure the Babylonians were probably rubbing the Jewish noses in it, so to speak. But it seems to me that the Babylonians demanded exactly what Judah required for healing in this moment. Judah needed to remember Zion. Judah needed to rejoice in the Lord. And she could not heal from these wounds without learning to rejoice once again. The damage inflicted by generational sin and dysfunction can wound us deeply. It's easy to drift into victimhood like we saw in Ezekiel and Jeremiah or be swallowed up with bitterness and resentment. But remaining embittered, resentful, and perpetuating the cycle of victimhood is only going to keep that cycle going in the future. James says, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. Learning how to be thankful and positive in the midst of difficulties helps us to heal and helps us to cope and helps us to get through these difficult times. Stop these generational cycles in their tracks. We must learn to be grateful and rejoice in the midst of tears and sorrows. There's one final thing I'll recommend this evening. As you're trying to put a stop to these things, please remember, our wounds belong to us, not to our children. The children of Abraham endured not one, but two captivities for their generational idolatry. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722. And after the northern kingdom fell, Asaph composed Psalm 78. A psalm that taught the southern kingdom of Judah the lessons from the past in order to encourage faithfulness in the present. Asaph begins that psalm with these words, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. The dark sayings he refers to are a review of Israel's notorious history of idolatry. He goes on to say, we will not hide them from our children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Israel did not hide their shameful history from future generations. And there is some wisdom in making our children aware of the cycles we are attempting to break. However, we must be very diligent to keep these as our burdens to bear. These are our wounds, our hurts, our disappointments, our heartaches. If we struggle to bear with them as adults, then why in the world would we pass these wounds on to children? Breaking generational cycles is my cross to take up. If I want these cycles to end with me, then I must bear the cross. The wounds must be mine. The hurt must be mine. Let them be free from them, brethren. Let it stop with me. Back in Ezekiel 18, 
you might remember, God talks of a righteous man, an unrighteous man, and a righteous son. I paralleled that with three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I think Doug talked to us about this guy yesterday. Pretty sure he did. Who was Hezekiah's son? It's Manasseh, right? Manasseh. Good king or bad king? Very bad king, right? Manasseh was a king whose evil outpaced the Amorites. And that's really something to say, isn't it? That's really quite something. And I guess you could say that Manasseh fell back into the trap of generational idolatry. Manasseh's reign nearly ended in disaster. As punishment for Manasseh's depravity, God sends the Assyrians who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Babylon, punishment for generational idolatry. Now, when he was in affliction, the book of Second Chronicles tells us, Manasseh implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. We hear Manasseh, we think bad king, but we forget the rest of the story. What's the rest of the story? Repentance. Manasseh repented. God's mercy compelled Manasseh not only to repent, but when he got back to Jerusalem, he set about restoring the nation. That wasn't a complete restoration. He left some of the features of idolatry intact, but it was a lot closer than it used to be. After talking about three generations vacillating between righteousness and unrighteousness in Ezekiel 18, God talks about a fourth generation in verse 21. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. If Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah are the first three, it seems to be that Manasseh is that fourth man. The wicked man who turns from all his sins which he has committed. Manasseh shows us it is never too late. It is never too late to break a cycle. There is always an opportunity to repent. You can change the trajectory of your life and your family's life tonight. And perhaps it might begin for you by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, our Savior. If we can help anyone begin their life anew, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.